The title of this evening's talk is Transformation and Relinquishment of Afflictive States of Mind. And beginning with a quote from the Zen tradition, I don't know actually who said it. Pain, like pleasure, is an inevitable and temporary part of living. Suffering, however, is optional. Some years ago I attended a meeting of Dharma teachers that included teachers from many of the various Buddhist lineages. And in one of our discussions, the uh, question, what is Buddhism, came up. The Dalai Lama, who was one of the guests of honor at this meeting, said that his response to this question is that Buddhism is about certain kinds of mental training to eliminate all kinds of negative or afflictive emotions and all traces of these emotions. And then he went on uh, to define realization, liberation, as the complete purification of afflictive emotions. This uh, definition of realization, of Nibbana, being the complete purity of the mind, the heart, has been described as the mind, the heart of an arahant, a completely and fully liberated being. In hearing His Holiness, uh, the Dalai Lama, speak of this, there was uh, the sense that he spoke from a very deep place of confidence in truly, truly believing that this was possible. In the many times that I've practiced with Saidao Upandita and with Pawak Saidao, both of these venerable teachers have spoken of this same possibility in similar ways over and over again. And of course, in the suttas, the Buddha often speaks of this particular aspect of liberation, this aspect of freedom in a similar way. As our own confidence grows and deepens, we too begin to get at least some sense that this is our possibility. In its deepest sense, the basic aim of these teachings and practices isn't about what we ordinarily think of as having a happy life in this lifetime. And so, here you all are, making physical and mental effort in the service of the purification of the mind, the purification of the heart. Here in retreat and in our life outside of retreat, we come to know, we come to directly experience that through our practice, through our physical and mental efforts, certain states of mind increase. Others decrease. And we begin to find that at least to some degree, we've let go of what's unwholesome. We've let go at least to some degree of what brings suffering, what brings harm to ourself, and what's harmful to others. 
we begin to find that the wholesome states of mind, of heart, are more and more our experience. They're more readily available, manifesting more often in our life. And so our feeling of connection and confidence in these teachings and practices takes deeper root. Confidence in our own capacity to realize the teachings, to be successful in relationship to our practice in the immediacy of here and now grows, along with confidence in relationship to our deepest goals. And some words from the Buddha, from the Anguttara Nikaya. Abandon what is unwholesome, O bhikkhus. One can abandon the unwholesome. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do so. If this abandoning of the unwholesome would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to abandon it. But as the abandoning of the unwholesome brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, abandon what is unwholesome. Cultivate what is wholesome, O bhikkhus. One can cultivate the wholesome. If it were not feasible, I would not ask you to do it. In this cultiva- if this cultivation of the wholesome would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to cultivate it. But as the cultivation of the wholesome brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, cultivate what is wholesome. The extraordinary wisdom, metta, and compassion of the Buddha, the heart, mind of a Buddha, it sees only suffering and the end of suffering and encourages, exhorts those heading towards suffering to take care and to pay attention rather than judging them or condemning them. And the heart, mind of a Buddha in seeing those heading towards the end of suffering rejoices for them. This approach to life, this way of seeing can really be a great inspiration inspiring feelings of self-confidence within us. It can be done. I can do it. Over the years of my practice, there certainly have been times when I've experienced uh, various difficulties within myself in relationship to the teachings and practices. And when I've been able to really be very honest and humble about it with myself, I've seen that most of the time it's been because I was afraid that I wasn't capable of actualizing the teachings. And I've also found that when I've been really filled with confidence in relationship to myself, that my love and gratitude for the teachings, as well as my own practice, love and gratitude in relationship to my own practice, has deepened and grown. The Venerable Pawak Sayadaw says that we must always approach things with the attitude that you can be successful. That this is what the Buddha taught, he says, over and over again. Once 
in a practice interview with Pak Saido, I said to him, this is just too hard. And he looked at me uh, with a great kindness in his eyes and just a light laughter. And he simply said, no, it isn't. (laughs) And it's true. (laughs) The suttas, the direct teachings of the Buddha, are just filled with this approach to practice. I don't know if he laughed lightly with his students when he said these things, but maybe. (laughs) This evening we'll specifically uh, explore a few of the difficult or afflictive states of mind that arise in our human experience. And also explore some of the ways that the Buddha encourages us to work with them. In the light of purification, in the light of the Dalai Lama's definition of liberation of mind, liberation of heart. It's as though all of us have skeletons in the closet. And the Buddha was not excluded from this. When he left the palace as a young man, in search of freedom, in search of liberation from anguish and confusion, His search was grounded in finding liberation from his own experiences of suffering. He wasn't looking for the truth of awakening from some idealistic or philosophical stance. So these skeletons in the closet, the old and sometimes seemingly new anger, fear, Resistance, judgments, doubts, sadnesses, grief, longings, strong desires and attachments, confusions, pains, on and on, it's a long list. From our present life's experience and carried on from many, many lifetimes' experience. Some of these we may have mindfully met and seen with an open mind, an open heart. Some of them we've ignored or hidden away. In our practice, we open to whatever arises, including things that may have been tucked away, the so-called skeletons in the closet. But very important, it's not about dredging up. It's not about digging up afflictive states of mind. They just appear, as you may have noticed. (laughs) Most all of us do need to discover the skeletons in order to find a really uh, true depth of happiness in our life. Or we'll just continue living in delusion thinking that we are, can be and really are happy, but never really truly being so. Meditation allows us to open the closet and to look into the boxes, to uncover what may have been hidden or that we've hidden from, or maybe judged as unacceptable and buried away the skeletons in the closet that maybe we've been hauling around for a long time, 
and often unconsciously, unwittingly. The poet and translator Stephen Mitchell uh, wrote a version of uh, the myth of Sisyphus, and this is his version of that story. We tend to think of Sisyphus as a symbol of a tragic mortal hero, condemned by the gods to shoulder his rock sweatily up the mountain and again up the mountain forever. The truth is that Sisyphus is in love with the rock. He cherishes every roughness and every ounce of it. He talks to it, sings to it. It has become the mysterious other. He even dreams of it as he sleepwalks upward. Life is unimaginable without it, looming always above him like a huge gray moon. He doesn't realize that at any moment he's permitted to step aside, let the rock hurtle to the bottom, and go home. Practice gives us some very powerful tools. The tools of concentration, mindfulness, investigation, metta, and compassion, each of which helps us to open to our experience from the clarity of a focused mind and from the heart of kindness, acceptance, and patience, enabling us to see clearly and to be able to go home. With concentration and mindfulness grounded in the kindness of a non-judgmental presence, our possibility is to realize that fear, anger, doubt, strong desire, attachment, sadness, irritation, judgment, worry, expectation, disappointment, really have no more control over us. We begin to realize that the reactive, habitual need to analyze it over and over and over again, or the habit of trying to get rid of it, or to fix it, or trying to ignore it, or maybe the habit of deluding ourselves with a seeming equanimity, that, oh, it's really nothing kind of attitude we begin to realize that none of these reactive patterns really serve us. When we begin to meet and see these reactive habit patterns within the heart of kindness, the door to clear seeing, or as I like to say, seeing through, is opened. The beginning of a healthy response rather than unconsciously dropping into old reactive patterns in relationship to afflictive emotions is born out of clearly connecting and a non-judgmental knowing. This is how it is in this present moment. So we leave everything as it is. Our rooms with all of the boxes opened and the skeletons 
uncovered, so to say. And we find that we can be present in this moment of life without the old habit of giving the past, be it 20 years ago or maybe just a few moments ago, continued power over us. This is our possibility. There's a saying that comes from the time of the Buddha <clears throat> that says this, rain saddens what is kept, kept wrapped up, but never saddens what is open. Uncover then what is concealed, lest it be sodden by the rain. We can't be free from something we don't see or something that we ignore. The Sri Lankan monk Bhante Gunaratana, in his book Mindfulness in Plain English, wrote this, View all problems as challenges. Look upon negativities that arise as opportunities to learn and to grow. Don't run from them, condemn yourself, or bury your burden in saintly silence. You have a problem, he says. Great. (laughs) More grist for the mill. Rejoice. Dive in. Investigate. And then I added, within the heart of kindness. And so we sit quietly and we watch ourselves, And all kinds of things come to the surface. Really the mind, at least minds that aren't yet totally purified, are primarily a set of mental habits, conditioned habitual ways of thinking and feeling. To change, they must come to the surface and be acknowledged, accepted, and clearly seen. This takes time. We can't hurry it. We simply resolve and persevere with patience. And the rest will take care of itself. And sometimes there is resistance and fear to this opening. Anxiety, tension, worry and doubt are created by and manifest to the degree of the strength of our resistance. Resistance is based in fear. And this can be a vicious cycle. And so we practice with great gentleness, kindness, and a deep patience for and with ourselves. In through this process of opening to and relinquishing, relinquishing our conditioned, habituated patterns of suffering, relinquishing our addictions of mind. The great Indian teacher Nisargadatta Maharaj says, don't bully yourself. Violence will make you hard and rigid. Don't fight with what you take to be obstacles on your way. Just be interested in them. Watch them. Observe. Inquire. Let anything happen, good or bad, but don't let yourself be submerged by what happens. 
I'd like to take a bit of a look now at what is maybe the most subtle and yet one of the most deeply pervasive aspects of suffering in this life, which is so directly connected uh, to the suffering we experience in relationship to difficult emotions. The suffering that's inherent in ignoring the truth that everything in this world, everything in this universe comes into being through the combination of a multitude of conditions. Everything is relative, related. One thing leads to another. Because of this, that. Everything is contingent and thus conditional. Everything is in relationship. And in truth, in an infinitude of changing relationships. Including the arising of fear, anger, worry, sadness, judgment, doubt, strong desires, attachments, etc. And yet we so often believe that the opposite of this is true. The opposite of this is really the reality of things. Taking our experiences and things to be as though quite solidly and singularly in place and here to stay, which will always, eventually, create suffering in ourself and for others. We grasp onto the past and we project into the imaginary future, solidifying both in our mind. And yet, life just simply keeps flowing along. The good news is that an amazing thing about suffering itself is that it too is conditional, totally relative, contingent, a totally relative, contingent aspect of life. It's not an absolute. In Taos, New Mexico, where I live, during the midsummer and early fall, we have uh, what we call our monsoon season. And in the big uh, open sky of Taos, we often have huge arches of rainbows appearing, often even double rainbows. A rainbow appears because of particular conditions coming together. Just the right amount of moisture in the atmosphere, the angle of the light being just right. And then, of course, one has to be looking, standing in the right place and looking in the right direction at the right time. And it all changes so quickly. Everything in life, including ourselves, meaning all of our experiences of body, heart, and mind, are like a rainbow the coming together of a changing set of conditions that are totally relative, related, contingent, conditional, and empty in and of themselves. And it's very obvious with rainbows, but not so for most of us with the more solidly appearing 
and sticky mental and physical phenomena. Our rainbow body, our rainbow mind, including emotional states of mind, which for many of us can be the experiences that we most readily identify with and get stuck in. Thinking of things and experiences, the various states and moods of our mind as permanent, unchanging, identifying with any of these as me, mine, I, will inevitably bring suffering. The degree to which we grasp, cling, and identify with our experience, whatever it may be, pleasant or unpleasant physical or mental experience, the degree to which we grasp, cling, and identify with our experience, this is the degree to which we'll suffer. Our practice is about really, truly being in the present. This present moment and this present moment this one, just as it is right now, right now. It's not that the present moment causes suffering. It's the desire for it to last or the desire for this moment to be different that causes us to suffer. Liberation isn't rooted in anything imaginary, pretended, hoped for, wished for, philosophized about, or avoided, or ignored. And we have this saying in English, ignorance is bliss. Well, ignorance isn't bliss. In the clarity of the Buddha's teaching, Ignorance is ignorance, and bliss is bliss. (laughs) With ignorance, in fact, uh, providing the very fertile ground that delusion needs in order to sprout. Delusion manifests as an unknowing because of the lack of penetration or the concealment of the real nature of things. With this delusion of unknowing, there's an absence or or the missing of right or true understanding. And it's experienced as the mental blindness or mental darkness of delusion, which is caused by a lack of careful and wise attention. This is really the root of all that's unwholesome. But fortunately, ignorance and delusion are only conditioned, impermanent, contingent states of suffering. Just two of the many hues of the ephemeral rainbow of our experience. So going on now, 
with exploring a few specific hues of the rainbow of emotional states and beginning with fear. In our practice and in our life outside of a formal practice setting, fear often appears in the guise of doubt, anxiety, worry, resistance, such as feeling like, I won't attend to, I won't open to, I don't want to, or maybe feeling like I can't be or I'm not sure that I want to be with this experience, this unfamiliar new experience or this old familiar experience or this strong emotional state or this pain in the body or this pleasurable experience. I can't be with this moment of life. And maybe feeling frozen or caught or just simply unable to open, unable to open to and receive the experience fully, deeply, with a mindful presence. From this perspective, fear can manifest outwardly in relationship to situations and in relationship to other people as judgment or blaming the critical mind if we take it up, if we believe it. It's his fault. It's because she, it's because they, it's because this place, etc. This fear turned inward can manifest as self-judgment, self-blaming, self-doubt, self-criticism, a feeling of unworthiness, not being good enough, or maybe just not being enough, not doing it right, not being able to do it right. Our practice, our life, our self not being right, not being perfect, whatever that might mean to each of us. And really, all of this is rooted in fear. I'd like to offer you another approach to perfection, which is probably uh, pretty different from how most of us have been conditioned to think of what it means to be a perfect person. And this is from the Taoist uh, teacher Chang Tzu, his definition of perfection. The mind of a perfect person is like a mirror. It grasps nothing. It expects nothing. It reflects, but doesn't hold. Therefore, the perfect person can act without effort. We may have a habit of getting caught in and identifying with the mind of judgment, doubt, blaming, criticism, inwardly in relationship to ourself or outwardly in relationship to others, which is actually often a way of distracting ourselves from the fear that may be lurking underneath. 
I think that often we're afraid of the fear, afraid to look directly at it, especially maybe if we've taken a peek and found that it might not have been so easy. Years ago, one of my teachers uh, told me when I came in and fearfully reported the experience of fear, he said to me, fear is just fear. Well, immediately, internally, when he said this, when I heard it, my inward response was, well, that's really easy for you to say. (laughs) Obviously, at that moment, there was uh, quite a degree of resistance and irritation in my thought. But eventually, I began to see that, yes, fear is just fear. As we gently, open-heartedly persevere with our practice of mindfulness-based practices and concentration rooted in metta, rooted in kindness towards ourself, we begin to be able to meet and receive fear, (coughs) to come close to it, to look it in the eye, and not be so bound, not be so imprisoned by it, and not be shut off out of fear to the vastness of possibility. The 12th century Persian poet Hafiz said, fear is the cheapest room in the house. I would like to see you living in better conditions. As our mind and heart get stronger and our concentration, mindfulness and metta muscles develop, we can begin to acknowledge the presence of fear, accept that it is, and know that it doesn't need to run our life. It's not who we are. It's not mine, not me, not I. I'm not a fearful person. Fear happens. Yes, fear happens because of a multitude of conditions coming together in this moment. It's not an independent, solid something. The arising of fear in this moment is totally dependent on many, many conditions, some of which we can see and know, and many of which we don't know and may never see. It may be a moment of very intense experience, But when we begin to practice seeing clearly from this perspective, we begin to understand that it's not something solid or permanent, and it's clearly not me or mine. And it's not that the energy of fear will never appear again. We learn to be steadfast. We learn to stand in the fear. We learn to lose the fear of fear and begin to see it clearly. See through it, so to say, like we see through the hues of a rainbow. A couple of years ago, there was an article in National Geographic magazine about uh, a woman, a 40-year-old woman named Gerland, who was the first woman to climb K2 in the Himalayas, without oxygen. 
And in this article, her husband, Ralph, was also a, a, a mountain climber. And there was a short section in this article where each of them, Rolf and Gerlin, described uh, their experience of fear, their relationship to fear. So here is Rolf, these are Rolf's words. He, Rolf, or not his words, but about him, he, Rolf, relished how the sensation of fear in his stomach revealed the margins of his ability and compelled him to pay attention. And Gerland met fear with the quiet calm that possessed her when she was absorbed in what she had to do. When she kept herself completely focused on the task at hand, she didn't feel afraid. Her husband, Rolf, turned back partway up this climb, and Gerland and two other people kept going, and she got to the top. And when she reached the top of K2, she took a small Buddha uh, rupa, a small Buddha statue that she had uh, in her backpack and placed it on top of K2. She was, was and still is a practicing Buddha. The Buddha's teaching offers us the possibility of a different perspective a different relationship to things than how most of us have been conditioned, patterned. And of course, as we know, it doesn't really work to ignore or try to suppress difficult emotional energies. Because what happens? They just reappear. Putting a tight lid on emotional states actually blocks and deadens our sensitivities, keeping the possibility of purification, the possibility of transformation at bay. And of course, it's not about blindly acting out and blindly believing afflictive emotions. This is kind of like watering and fertilizing the seeds of our habit patterns. And something important to remember that I briefly mentioned earlier on in this talk, is that our practice is not about purposefully dredging up and then miring in analytically with all of the historical and projected stories that inspire emotional states. The strong energies of fear and anger can color our entire experience when we're caught up and swept away in them. To practice and to understand, we need to be able to come very close to our immediate experience. An intimacy of connection rooted in kindness with a very focused and mindful attention. With a mindfulness-based practice, This intimacy is in the spirit of investigation, in the spirit of exploration, without pushing away or pulling away from experience or desiring it to be different. For those of you who are specifically practicing samatha or concentration and metta, 
these same principles apply, though the investigation may not necessarily be as extensive as it can be in a mindfulness-based vipassana practice, unless an unwholesome state blows up into becoming very pervasive and sticky. So now taking a bit of a look at anger. In the classical teachings, anger is likened to a pond that's on top of a boiling spring. When we're angry, we can't see very far. We can't see clearly. Anger is a very strong, very powerful energy. And from this perspective, it actually can be quite seductive. A while ago, I knew someone whose energy was fueled primarily by anger. She was very attached and identified with her anger and, in fact, spoke about really liking her anger. She said that she felt very strong and powerful in the anger. But unfortunately, she was not a happy person. She was kind of like a porcupine. People would begin to get close to her and feel the sharp needles, the sharp sting of her anger, and they'd move away. She was actually a very lonely person, and yet so identified in her mind as an angry person, and so afraid that she would lose herself, meaning lose her energy and power, lose the fuel for her life, as she put it, if she let go of her anger. It takes a tremendous honesty and humility to really, truly practice. And it sometimes takes a lot of mindfulness and meta-energy directed towards ourself to open to, to be with, and to clearly see things as they are. Mindfulness and metta don't cover over anger or fear or jealousy or irritation. Practice changes our mind. And it's about making the choice to transform the heart, transform the mind, so that we embody love and wisdom. And it's a courageous choice, actually. It actually opens the heart and gives us the strength to not turn away, to not distract ourselves, and to not pretend anything, but to really stay still, be here, be present, in relationship with what is. It's a choice to see and experience things just as they are, with the very natural strength that comes from the expanding capacity of our heart and mind. In the mid-1990s, over a consecutive two-year period, I taught in Poland. The first year I taught for two months, and then for one month the second year. And one student who stayed for the whole two months of practice the first year was a man in his 40s. He was a very successful businessman uh, from Warsaw, who had quite diligently uh, practiced Zen and Karate and Aikido for about 10 years prior to coming to the two-month Vipassana and Metta retreat that I was offering in Poland. 
He said he'd grown up in a home environment uh, with a very ill-tempered father and uncle, living, as he said, with his heart burning with fear much of the time through his childhood, with the fear still present in his adult life. But much more obvious to him was the fact that he'd learned and taken on the habit of thought, words, and actions of that same ill temper. And he described himself as a man of heavy emotions, which was becoming more and more uncomfortable as, he, as his practice developed and deepened. Unlike his father and his uncle, he had begun to see himself much more clearly through his martial arts practice and his interest and practice in Buddhist meditation. For the full year following the two-month retreat in Prajekapolin, this man very diligently, mindfully practiced metta with a particular phrase, may I accept myself fully, unconditionally, just as I am in this present moment, was his phrase. It's the only phrase he used. As the year progressed, he saw his habituated ill temper beginning to arise sooner and sooner and sooner in its process. And consequently, he was able to let it go more and more often before it really fully blossomed. He returned to the second month-long retreat in Prajaka, Poland the following year as a much-changed and much, much happier uh, human being. What's often overlooked is the disastrous effects of anger, the harm that anger does to oneself. The first person hurt is always the one who is angry. An angry mind is a suffering mind. An angry mind is agitated, tight, narrow, constricted. The quality of awareness changes. Clear seeing and perspective vanish. One often feels restless, driven. Nothing is satisfying. Sleep can be difficult. The body is tense. With anger, the sense of self looms very large, as does the sense of the other. One of the primary reasons that anger is so painful is that it quickly creates a sharp separation between self and other. It's kind of as though a line is drawn that isn't to be passed. With each angry moment deepening the imprint of anger in the mind stream. Something that I think is both amazing, simple, and difficult to see is that irritation, anger, fear, rage, hate, develop from a momentary, unpleasant feeling that went unnoticed. 
again, pointing to the totally conditional nature of afflictive states of mind. And the importance in our practice of seeing the momentary unpleasant or pleasant feeling tone that shows up in relationship to experience. The point at which we become aware of anger or any other afflictive mind state depends on the quality, the focused strength and depth of our attention. So how can we work with anger through our practice? Just like any other emotional state of mind, anger is not solid. It's made up of many, many different components. Thoughts, stories spinning out, a specific mood of the mind, an emotional tone, and various changing bodily sensations. With all of this coming and going, arising and passing and changing. As soon as you see the thoughts that are spinning out the stories of anger or fear or self-judgment or sadness, doubt, greed, clinging, expectation, disappointment, it's very helpful to try to just let them go. Let them drop away. Give them no mind, as I sometimes say. These thoughts really aren't only the expression of anger. They're also feeding the anger. They're like fertilizer for the angry mind. So let the stories go and bring the attention directly into the sensations of the body, feeling the emotion directly and in itself without the story. So... What are you feeling? Well, maybe heat, or maybe tightness, or pressure, heaviness, contraction, vibration. Where is it? And very important, how is it changing? Notice the mind, meaning at this point, what is your relationship? to these sensations? Is there resistance? More contraction? Really give this your best attention. Feel it, see it, know it. Is there interest? Is there interest grounded in kindness? Grounded in acceptance of the sensations of your body? Take a look. And in the service of acceptance, kindness, and patience, if the emotion is too strong to sit with, do not force yourself to sit with it. Do some walking meditation. You might even walk a bit faster than you usually do. Bring your attention directly into the body and the breath while walking. Or you might open up to the natural world outside, the expanse of the fields, 
the trees in conjunction with the wide open spaciousness of the sky. Really take an interest. Notice the birds, chipmunks, squirrels, the small creatures of the world. Don't indulge thinking. Stay mindful in the present moment in the physical world and in the body and also in the breath. In those moments of a connected present moment experience or attention and experience, afflictive emotion disappears. It isn't present. The ease, the sense of well-being that arises out of a completely connected present moment attention is really amazing. It's really beyond compare in a quietly wonderful way. Resting in the natural world can be both an immediate experience and a clear mirror of ease for us. Remembering the mountain climber Garland's relationship to fear. The great Indian teacher Nisargadatta Maharaj, who often uh, taught in dialogue with his students, uh, this is a little dialogue between him and one of his students. His students said, What's the real cause of suffering? And Nisargadatta responded, self-identification with the limited. Sensations as such, however, do not cause suffering. It's the mind bewildered by wrong ideas, addicted to thinking, I am this, I am that, that fears loss and craves gain and suffers when frustrated. The truth of the matter is that the energy that's present in strong emotional states, it doesn't disappear. It isn't lost in the purification and the wisdom that practice affords us. We don't lose the energy. In clear seeing that's free of ego interest, with a non-self-centered presence that isn't exclusively or predominantly in pursuit of our own personal advantages such as maybe power or control or pleasure or status or maybe prestige and recognition. With a clear, non-self-absorbed mindful attention based in the heart of kindness, therein lies the possibility of the relinquishment and transformation of the strong energies of fear, anger, greed, attachment, sadness, etc. So now we'll spend just a little bit of time exploring the wanting mind. States of strong desire, greed, clinging, attachment. Classically, unwholesome desire, clinging, attachment, in the mind is likened to a pond that's been filled with dye. We aren't able to see the bottom. Our vision's obscured. When our heart, our mind is clouded, we're caught in the energies of greed and attachment. We're blinded by desire. 
a blatant and current example of this with greed being the root of the current worldwide environmental crisis. People blindly acting out of enormous greed, causing enormous personal and global suffering. This is rooted in the desire that comes out of misunderstanding, the desires we project onto the future, for instance, hoping, dreaming, fantasizing about what we think we need to get, how we think things need to be in order for us to be contented, to be at ease in our life. The thoughts that satisfaction of a particular desire will give us something that in fact it won't, that in fact it can't. And there are healthy, worthy desires. All desire is not a bad thing. For instance, it's at least in part what got you here on retreat. In light of our exploration this evening, I'd like to share a prayer. Uh, I've I've been told it was a personal practice of Mother Teresa's. And someone sent this to me in the mail. And this is it. I changed one word. She says, or said, deliver me, O Jesus. I say, deliver me, O Dhamma. (laughs) You can take it either way you want. Deliver me, O Dhamma, from the desire of being loved, from the desire of being extolled, from the desire of being honored, from the desire of being praised, from the desire of being preferred, from the desire of being consulted, from the desire of being approved, from the desire of being popular, from the fear of being humiliated, from the fear of being despised, from the fear of suffering rebukes, from the fear of being slandered, from the fear of being forgotten, from the fear of being wronged, from the fear of being ridiculed, from the fear of being suspected. She got them all, I think. A friend called me uh, just uh, shortly after I read this to myself, and I said, oh, you have to hear this, and I read it over the phone, and he went, oh, my God, have I got a lot to do. (laughs) true we do have a lot to do (laughs) but I find it really quite inspiring many of us can become quite attached to getting or trying to get certain objects of our desire and also we can expend an incredible amount of time and energy trying to hold on to uh, or get something back or we can spend enormous amounts of time and energy trying to keep some experience or someone from changing. Maybe even here in retreat. Maybe the particular wonderful sitting you had the other day. Or maybe even a sitter, a particular period of practice that you had on your last retreat. It's the contraction, the clinging, the attachment, the self-centeredness, the identification around desire, that is the problem. I think we could safely say that attachment is the biggest problem in the world. So a really good question you might ask yourself every once in a while is, how driven am I by my desires? This is a long time. 
A simple, quite mundane example. Some years ago I was at a retreat center in New Mexico that has some of the most uh, beautiful, wonderful flower gardens. And I was walking along next to one of these gardens and I noticed a really sweet smell. I followed my nose to the smell. And I got down close to that particular flower and I really took in the smell. Very present. Aware of the pleasantness of the experience. And then I got caught. I had to go and do something else. But I wanted to stay there and continue experiencing that sweet smell. So with the next moment of clinging and not being willing to let go and to go on, the pleasantness of the experience of that previous moment was gone. I was experiencing tightness in the body and a degree of burning uh, irritation in the heart and in the mind. I did get up and I walked away to do what needed to be done, but there was still a, a clinging to the sweet smell even though it was uh, totally gone from my immediate field of experience. I was attached to the memory of it, wanting it back, planning when I could get back to that garden and imagining how nice it would be later on when I finally got back there. What was just a moment ago, uh, what, what just a moment ago was a moment of pleasantness was no longer pleasant, but rather a moment of being caught in the grip of my clinging mind, a moment of suffering. And it happens so quickly. To sustain and deepen in and with our practice two of the most essential qualities of mind and heart that are required of us are honesty and humility. Self-deception, self-delusion, and clear seeing, sensing, and knowing are mutually incompatible. As we begin to sense, see, and know how greed and clinging, that they're there and how they arise, we find that we're experiencing a kind of tension stress, a burning, burning desire. And I think for many people there's often some confusion, delusion, that this state of desire, this yearning, this attachment, that it feels good. It's even sometimes confused with love until we begin to see and know it clearly. The Buddha talked about everything burning, The eye is burning, eye consciousness is burning. The ear is burning, ear consciousness is burning. And he went on through each of the six sense doors in this same way. And then he says, burning of what? Burning of desire, burning of hatred, jealousy, fear. Burning with the fire of confusion. Some years ago I found a recipe and at risk uh, of giving you a recipe that you already have and maybe occasionally cook up, I'd like to share this with you. The ingredients. And it's called the recipe for unhappiness. 
the ingredients, one cup of what is. One cup of inability to accept what is. Three tablespoons of complaints. One teaspoon of light whining. A quarter pound of alternate scenario, preferably unattainable. One bunch of actual reality. One pint of idealized worldview. Two teaspoons of perfection. And four sprigs of envy, minced for garnish. And here's what you do with it. In a large bowl, whisk together what is with an equal amount of inability to accept what is. Stir in complaints and let sit until brooding and sulking sets in. Add a dash of light whining, especially in the company of friends, but be careful not to over-season or they won't hang around. In a separate bowl, add alternate scenario to actual reality from your garden and separate leaves from stems. Then try to reattach leaves in exact pattern that existed before separation. Pour in idealized worldview and process in food processor using on and off turns. When mixture is pureed, add it to what is and inability to accept what is and blend. Add exactly two teaspoons of perfection and let stand until tears form. Garnish with minced envy and serve immediately. So, um, a similar teaching from a different words and a different perspective. This is from the Chinese sage Nan Xin. By not quite accepting because they do not please us things that are so, we spend our entire lives making meaningless gestures somewhere next door to reality. The Buddha offers us another recipe. The recipe of cultivating a strong and clear concentration, mindfulness, and investigation rooted in kindness that meets the experience of the moment and sees it clearly just as it is. We can actually learn to experience the extremes and the subtleties of afflictive emotions without getting caught up or swept away and overcome by them. It's as though we learn to see them so clearly that we see through them. We see their nature, just like we see through the hues, the colors of a rainbow. One way, maybe not your usual way, that you might consider emotional states in relationship to your practice is that they're the nourishing mud in which the lotuses of compassion, generosity, sensitivity, and wisdom can take root and blossom. And this is from the Vimalakirti Sutra from Mahayana Buddhism. Flowers like the blue lotus, the red lotus, the white lotus do not grow on the dry ground in the wilderness, but grow in the swamps and mud banks. Just so the Buddha qualities grow in those living beings who are like swamps and mud banks of passion. 
For me, this teaching is really an acknowledgement that as human beings, we experience many strong and difficult energies, the mud banks of passions. It's not that something's gone wrong. And so not to pretend to ourselves or pretend to others that we don't feel these things. This is our human experience. This is what we have to work with. This is part of our practice. The suffering, the anguish, the confusion that's felt in relationship to identification with emotions, with what are sometimes called the poisons of self-centered existence, are for many people a potent aspect of the process of awakening. With these poisons being transformed through practice into what are sometimes called nectars or Buddha wisdoms. Afflictive emotions or cankers, as the Buddha some often called them, transformed into purified energies. When the thread of self is pulled out, strong emotional states are digested into wisdom. So just for a moment now, looking at a couple, a few of these emotional states and their transformative possibilities. Anger without the self, no self-grasping, transforms into a mirror-like wisdom. The heart, the mind, reflecting clearly. And it's from this that appropriate action springs. Wanting, strong desire, without the self-centered quality, without self-referencing, without self-grasping, transforms into the wisdom of clear, discriminating awareness. Sadness, without self, with no self-grasping, has the possibility of digesting, transforming into the heart of metta and great compassion. And lastly, fear, without self, is digested into the great, strong heart of metta, compassion, and equanimity, bringing us the capacity to connect without fear and without judgment. In the recipe that we've inherited from the Buddha, we learn to let go of, to relinquish what causes the burning. And in this letting go, we find what is sometimes described as the place of coolness. The place of coolness and luminosity in the heart and mind. The place of freedom from the burning. The end of suffering. And then what is seen is just the seen. What is heard is just the heard. What is felt is just the felt. And what is known is just the known. Nothing added or needing to be added and nothing taken away or needing to be taken away. As our practice begins to take deeper root and blossom, we really, truly begin to know that this moment 
is just enough as it is. And we begin to know through our own experience the liberation that's immediately available in any moment. Liberation through non-clinging. In closing the talk with a poem, and the poem is uh, by Roger Keyes. He calls it Hokusai Says. Hokusai is a, quite a famous Japanese painter. Some of you may know of him. And his most famous painting uh, is a painting of a huge wave uh, with the wave that comes as it's coming over the top looking like fingers grasping or starting to grasp. And at the bottom of the wave, or the, on, in, the, in the dip before it uh, starts to come over, is a tiny boat. And there are people in this little tiny boat the bottom of the wave. Hokusai says, look carefully. He says, pay attention, notice. He says, keep looking, stay curious. He says, there's no end to seeing. He says, look forward to getting old. He says, keep changing, you just get more who you really are. He says, get stuck, accept it, repeat yourself as long as it's interesting. He says, keep doing what you love. He says, keep praying. He says, every one of us is a child. Every one of us is ancient. Every one of us has a body. He says, every one of us is frightened. He says, every one of us has to find a way to live with fear. He says, everything is alive. Shells, buildings, people, fish, mountains, trees. Wood is alive. Water is alive. Everything has its own life. Everything lives inside you. He says, live with the world inside you. He says, it doesn't matter if you draw or write books. It doesn't matter if you saw wood or catch fish. It doesn't matter if you sit at home and stare at the ants on your veranda or the shadows of the trees and the grasses in your garden. It matters that you care. It matters that you feel. It matters that you notice. It matters that life lives through you. Contentment is life living through you. Joy is life living through you. Satisfaction and strength is life living through you. Peace is life living through you. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Look, feel. Let life take you by the hand. Let life live through you. And let's Sit quietly for just a moment.
And thank you for listening to the Dhamma. And we'll close our evening chanting the reflections on the sharing of blessings together.